He is risen. That first part was scripture, the he is risen part. The second part we've added, we, we do that call and response kind of thing, not scripture. You know, we're not quoting scripture as we are in the first part. But here is a scripture. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Well, that's a bummer on Resurrection Sunday, isn't it? It's a bummer if it's not true. It's a bummer if we're imagining fairy tales. It's it's a bummer if we, if, if, we're just clinging to, some, to something that's a myth or a lie or is not in actuality true. But this morning, I would like to present evidence to give us all confidence that we can trust what the Word says and what God did on Easter morning nearly 2,000 years ago. Now, What I'm going to be presenting this morning is a very particular argument called the minimal facts argument by Gary Habermas. I'm going to have that up there for a while. I highly encourage you to to write that down, to write his name down, because he's got so many videos on YouTube that you you can watch this. He goes into so much detail of scholars and evidence, and you can, I mean, he goes into a lot of detail that we're not going to have time to get into this morning. He's written so many books on the resurrection. He's currently working on a 5,000 page tome of his life's work on the resurrection. He's, I, I, heard, I heard him interviewed a couple weeks ago and I think he's at about page 4,700-ish. <laughs> so he is, if not the world expert on the resurrection, he's right up there. And, and I want to encourage you this morning, there is so much more evidence for the resurrection than what I'm gonna present. The thing that I love about Gary Habermas is that he, he is so stringent when it comes to the evidence. He works with skeptics all day long in his field, experts in his field that are skeptical scholars. They're not believers, but they are experts in their field. And this is what they allow. They, everything that I'm presenting to you, they agree to. And the question at the end of all of this is, all right, here's this pile of evidence. What do you do with it? What, what is the most logical conclusion at the end of seeing all that non-believing scholars will allow? So there, there is a lot more evidence. There, uh, there's a guy named Mike Lycona, L-I-C-O-N-A. He also has worked with Gary Habermas, written extra things. A lot of apologists have done a lot of work on, on the resurrection. So there's much more to it than this. This is just the, this is the bare minimum. Everyone accepts what I'm presenting, or basically everyone. So, given that, what Gary Habermas always cites is our scholars, and he emphasizes that we're not, in the day of social media and Facebook and blogs and everything else, everyone is an expert, right? Everyone can say X, Y, and Z about about Jesus or about anything really that they want. 
but those are not the ones who have studied. Those are not the ones who have put the work in. And, and let me give this caveat. I'm not saying just because someone is a so-called expert that we should always believe everything that they say. But what I am saying is that for these people who have done this, this work, these are the things that they are willing to allow, and they, they allow a lot. In fact, what's amazing, it seems to me anyway, as I've, as I've studied this over the years, it seems that the more skeptical we become as a, as a people, because there's a high degree of skepticism in our culture, would you not agree? It seems that the higher degree of skepticism, the more evidence God brings forth, because a lot of what I'm going to be presenting this morning at Gary Habermas presents, when he was doing his doctoral dissertation on this in the 70s, a lot of this was not allowed. And he, and he did his doctoral dissertation, by the way, at a secular university in Michigan. And it was, uh, it, it, this was not a, a seminary or anything like that. And this is what was allowed to him back then, and so much more is allowed nowadays. So, what I'm going to start out with first is a timeline for is a timeline for the resurrection and a timeline for some dating. Because what is the main objection that a lot of us see when we talk to people about the resurrection? They think, they think, or we talk to them about Jesus in general. They think, oh, you know. The Bible was written so long after the fact. It just, it was, you know, the telephone game and these myths rose up. And, and, and you know, the people back then, they didn't actually believe that Jesus was God. And, and, and the, these were just urban legends that just rose up over time. It, because look how long after the facts, the events did, were the things written down. So Gary Habermas he does, this, he does this great thing where he says, all right, we're going to come over here and we're going to call this the event. This is, this is crucifixion resurrection right here. So most scholars, it, it, the most liberal scholars will say, you know, we know that Mark was written first, right? Go with me on this if, if you're not aware of this. Mark, Mark was written first and they say he was written maybe around plus 40, those are liberal scholars. There's, there are some that will say he, he was written earlier than that. So Mark was written first. They think that a lot of uh, what Matthew and Luke wrote was taken from Mark, so they were written later. Mark, they say, or uh, Luke, they say, was written maybe at about 50. Matthew, maybe at about 55. John, now, remember, there's the cross over there. John, everybody says, was written the latest. John, they say, was written at maybe plus 65. So, 65 years after the cross. Well, you know, if, so, if something happened to you and you're writing it down 65 years later, I mean, come on, they'll say. How do you remember? You can't remember stuff that happened 65 years ago. You're, you're probably remembering things much more much more grandly than they happen. We know what happens to our memory. Memory is faulty, they say. We can't trust any of this. But, and, and an interesting caveat I do want to add, they have just found very recently a fragment of Mark that they have dated, they have officially dated back to 80 to 110 
which is uh, which is much sooner than what they than what they had dated anything prior to that. So they're wondering if maybe the Gospel of Mark can actually be dated back to 40 A.D. They they haven't they haven't confirmed the 40 A.D. date yet, but 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 that's still pretty early. But so let's say, you know, John was writing 65 years later. That's pretty bad, right? I mean, we we. We don't, uh, if, if you had something happen 65 years ago to you, you're not really going to remember it. But do we think that we know what happened to Alexander the Great? We, I mean, we, we think we could read history and Alexander the Great and all of his conquests and his amazing phalanxes and, and his strategy and he was this brilliant tactician, etc. Do you know when Alexander the Great, the earliest source we have for Alexander the Great? Sorry, you guys have to crane your necks like this. It's about 280. That's the earliest source. But the best sources that we have, I'm not going to be able to walk this far. But it's about 425 to 450. Those are uh, Plutarch and Arian. Ar- Ar- uh, Arian. So, and, and I, I can't keep walking further, but Alexander the Great is about the, the, the next best, the next best. In ancient, in ancient documents that we have as far as when they were written after the fact. It just gets worse from there. Um, Homer, the, uh, Iliad, the Iliad by Homer was written about 500 years after the fact. Um, Julius Caesar, we, we think that we know about Julius Caesar, and we say that we do, but the earliest one that we have written after Julius Caesar is 1,000 years after the fact. Uh, Aristotle, 1,400 years after the fact. So people want to be critical of the Gospels but, and, and the New Testament in general, but it is incredible, incredible how soon after the fact that, that they were written. And as far as religious texts go, uh, the Zoroastrian writings, you know, it's a little obscure, but Zoroastrian writings were written about 1,000 to 1,500 years later after the fact. Uh, the Upanishads, those are, those are significant Hindu texts. They were written uh, 1,800 years later. And Krishna, Krishna is an important figure in Hinduism. If he even lived, which a lot of Hindu scholars don't even think that he lived, if he even lived, the oldest copy of the Bhagavad Gita that we have is 4,200 years after he would have lived if he lived. So 65 years is nothing. And of course, uh, Mark is earlier. But that's worst case scenario. It's so much better than that. Scholars will, scholars love Mark or sorry, Paul. Scholars love Paul. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Um, if you look in the New Testament, there is, a, there is a field of study among these New Testament scholars. They look at early creeds in the New Testament. 
And there are dozens of these early creeds in the New Testament that were written prior to the New Testament. So Paul, Paul, scholars recognize Paul as authoritative. He, they will, and they will, they will completely allow you if you're, if you're dealing with scholars. And I, I, know, I know that all of us are not really going to deal with scholars, but we are going to deal with people in our spheres of influence. And so if they're going to quote some blog somewhere, you can say, you know, these people study in the field and these people will allow this. So I'm going to go with this instead of your blogger. And so this is why, this is why we're bringing in scholars in this. They, you can absolutely quote Paul, because a lot of times we'll say, oh, well, we can't quote the Bible because people don't accept the Bible as in the inspired word of God. No, these scholars, these critical scholars, they're not looking at it as the word of God. They're not even looking at it as, as inspired. They're just looking at it as, here's this book, and these are the books that we will allow you to quote that, that are trustworthy. So Paul's books that they will allow you to quote are Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, 1st Thessalonians, and Philemon. This is important because in it, Paul, in a lot of these books, Paul and others will have dozens of these early creeds. Here's my clicker. Here are just, whoops, here are just a few of the creeds. Uh, Gary, if you go to GaryHabermas.com, he's got a free ebook on there on, the, on his front page, and he goes through, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty long ebook, but he has lists and lists of these, and you're welcome to look. And, and the, the scholars can tell where these early creeds are. Um, you know, they have, their, they have their ways of, you know, it'll say, uh, here's a trustworthy saying, or, uh, you know, thing, things along those lines where it gives this, the scholars studying it, oh, that's, that's not just Paul continuing on in his epistle, that, that's this significant thing here. So, Paul, let's say uh, Galatians, take Galatians for example. Galatians, scholars will say, was written roughly 20 years after the cross. So, here's the cross. Galatians was written roughly, roughly here, and um, Romans was Romans was written roughly 50 A.D. So the you know those are those are even better those are even better than a little bit better than Mark, but it gets better than that. So um, these early creeds in a in a um, in a society, in a culture where most people were illiterate, how do, you, how do you convey information? And how do you make sure that it doesn't get lost? People didn't have Bibles, obviously. They couldn't, they, they couldn't just carry their Bible to, to their home church with them. They, and, and most of them were illiterate. So how do you convey information that sticks? You do it in a, in a like we put things to song, right? We, we will either put things to song or um, the way you still remember about the days of the month. 30 days has September, April, June, and November. That's how you remember it. That's how these early creeds were done so that, so that you remember it. It's, it's, not just a, it's not just a brute memorization. They put it in this sort of fashion. Well, 
In dealing with the objection of all this stuff just rose up over time, listen to one of these early creeds. Here, this isn't the main one we're going to deal with, but listen to this early creed. Romans 1, 3, and 4 is an early creed. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. That doesn't sound like they were just thinking that Jesus was some guy who just came along and, and unfortunately was killed in a humiliating fashion. It sounds like that immediately they are proclaiming Jesus is the son of God. He died and he was raised from the dead. Now, Paul, what we're going to be dealing with is a passage in 1 Corinthians 15. And Paul starts out, I'm going to, I'll put it up there in a minute. But Paul starts out by saying, for I delivered to you what I also received. I delivered to you what I also received. To us, that seems like a, I'm going to pass by that and get to, get to what he's getting at. But the important thing about this is, when did he receive it? So, all right, Galatians, about plus 20. But when was Paul saved? Paul was saved about, here's the cross, Paul was saved about plus two. So, but we know, we know from Galatians chapter one that he didn't immediately, he didn't immediately go and talk to the apostles and, and, and we know in uh, Galatians chapter one verses 15 through 19, he says this, but when he, who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, I did not immediately consult anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Peter and remained with him for 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So here he is saying... He meets Jesus at plus two. Then he goes away for three years, and at plus five, he meets with Peter and James, the brother of the Lord. So this is pretty good. This is, this is where he would have received that, that, that he was pass, then passing on to the Corinthian church. And Paul is, again, this is, this is another reason why scholars love Paul is because he is He's a careful thinker. And how do we know he's a careful thinker? Because then in chapter 2 of Galatians, he goes on to say he, he wanted to make sure that he got it right. Was I, was I running this race in vain? Was I preaching in vain? He says, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem and I set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality, those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. They added nothing to his gospel that he was preaching. And when James, Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. This is significant because he, he received the... He received the creed that we're going to go over here. 
And then, he, and then he's going along and preaching and preaching and preaching. And he goes back again 14 years later because he's careful and he says, am I getting this wrong? Am I getting, do I have it right? And the, and the big four in the church were there. Paul was there, obviously. Peter, John, and James were all in this meeting and they added nothing to him. They didn't correct him in any way. They didn't say, Paul, you know, you, you got this all wrong, buddy. You, what are you doing over here? They added nothing to him and they gave him the right hand of fellowship. So, this creed that we're talking about here, he, he was saved back here, but scholars date this creed that we're going to be talking about to within months of the resurrection. A lot of them will date it between one to two years of the resurrection, but back to as far as months after the resurrection. There is no time at all for legend to spring up in this creed. What creed? 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 7. For I delivered to you as of first importance, this is the most important thing, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance of the scriptures, that he appeared to Peter, then to the 12, then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, euphemism for dying. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. That creed dated within months to up to two years after the resurrection. That has everything in it. That has the, the, the deity, death, and resurrection of Christ. There is no time for legend to spring up in there. Now, this is, this is, this is a defeater for all of those who would want to say, you know, you guys are just believing fairy tales, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now I'm going to go on to, to the actual minimal facts that are allowed that um, Gary presents, and, and he, depending on his time, he will present differing levels of, of evidence. I'm going to present a more, uh, a slightly more exhaustive list. And what I want you to know, I don't know if you can read that very well, there's going to be this footnote at the bottom. Some of them are going to have a double asterisk in front of them. That means 90% of all scholars, including critical scholars, admit this fact. If there's no asterisk, it means only 75% <laughs> will admit those facts. So it's still, again, Gary is so stringent in, his, in the evidence that he presents because he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to just be in debates and, and just uh, get slapped down and say, oh, that's, you know, that's disallowable, you can't, you can't uh, present that. So what's the first one? That Jesus died by crucifixion. Now, it, what's amazing is, is Jesus, um, when you look at ancient history, a lot of us will, will think, will feel discouraged when we think about ancient history and how can we demonstrate 
how can we demonstrate the truth of the resurrection? But people study this and people, people, admit, people admit the criteria for evidence for ancient history. Because otherwise, otherwise, how could we know anything? Again, Julius Caesar, how can we actually know what happened with Julius Caesar or Alexander the Great? These things were written so far after, but, but ancient historians will say in, in an event of ancient history, one source, they can admit even one source and admit a thing is so. Bart Ehrman, I know that a lot of you haven't, haven't studied this area, but Bart Ehrman is one of the uh, most well-known critics of, of the New Testament. He, he, he is at the top of his field as far as being a New Testament scholar. He, he knows his stuff, but he rejected his faith, and now he is an atheist, and I, or an agnostic, and I hear he's either an atheist or verging on atheism. But Bart Ehrman is... Most, most of the time intellectually honest when he's dealing with his peers in the field of scholarship. When he goes, when he goes and he writes books and he appears on news shows, he, he's a, he plays a little bit more loose and fast with the facts. But even he will admit 12 outside sources of the crucifixion within 100 years. 12. I mean, again, in, in ancient history, we just don't have anything like this. It's, it's astonishing. So 90% of scholars will admit, yes, Jesus did actually die by crucifixion. He was buried. Uh, again, there's no asterisk on there, so only 75% of scholars will admit that he was buried. But if he died, something had to happen to him. And, and some people will say, oh, well, uh, you know, he was thrown into a common grave or, or whatever. But still, 75% of scholars will admit that he was buried. The disciples despaired and thought all hope was lost. This is important. Oh, oh, is it not? Oh, sorry. Thank you, Brett. Okay. So the disciples despaired and thought all hope was lost. This is important for later for later acknowledgments that the scholars will say, because you, we see the turnaround. If they, if, they, um, if they despaired at first and thought all hope was lost, then again, what accounts for later what happened? So the empty tomb, they will also, 75% will also admit the empty tomb. Now, the interesting thing is, when Gary Habermas was doing his doctoral dissertation in the 70s, hardly anyone, if, if, you, if you proclaimed your belief in the empty tomb, in the arena of academia, they would sort of giving you, give you a sad look and say, oh, are you an evangelical? Yeah, you must be an evangelical, aren't you? Nobody allowed the empty tomb. Now, 75% of critical scholars admit that the tomb was empty. And uh, this one, the number five, was a 90%, at the 90% level, that very soon after the disciples had real experiences that they thought was the risen Jesus. Now, critical scholars are gonna say, they're not gonna say they saw the risen Jesus, 
they're going to say they had real experiences that they thought was the risen Jesus. Now, over time, naturalistic theories have come up to try to explain this away. Oh, um, they were hallucinating. And as that's, that's a popular one. That, well, it used to be a popular one. It's not so popular anymore because psychologists then got involved and say, you know, Jesus appeared. Jesus didn't just appear to one person at one time. He appeared to multiple people multiple times. Uh, as we saw in the creed in the in First Corinthians, he appeared to the disciples. He appeared to Paul. He appeared to five hundred people all at the same time. Mass hallucin hallucinations, by definition, do not happen. You you can't if you're if you're if you are seeing something, or let's say you're even having a dream, you can't wake up and say to your spouse, hey, I just had this great dream. Come on, let's go back to sleep and have the dream together. No, by definition, hallucinations are in your own mind and no one else sees it. So that they admit that the disciples had real experiences that they thought was the risen Jesus, again, what is the explanation for that? Christians taught that Jesus' resurrection was bodily in nature. Now, this is important. Christianity is a falsifiable religion. That's important. It means that if, if someday, somehow, somebody finds the body of Jesus, there is no Christianity. And it's an, it, wouldn't it be the easiest thing in the world for the apostles to say, no, no, we saw him spiritually rise from the dead. We saw it. We know we saw it. Well, that's pretty easy. I mean, how are you going to disprove that? You're not. But from the beginning, early on, they were teaching that Jesus bodily rose from the dead. Okay, good. The disciples were transformed being willing to die for the resurrection. This is one of those 90% of scholars um, agree that, that this is what happened to the disciples. Again, why? Why, if, if it was a hallucination, if, if Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead, why did they go from, remember, an earlier point was that they were fearful and that they despaired and thought all hope was lost. And then they went to being willing to die for the resurrection, for, for, you know, for the idea that Jesus rose from the dead. Why? The resurrection, again, 90% of scholars will agree, the resurrection was taught very early. And we covered that creed at the beginning. And um, when you look at, if you were to go and look up a lot of these creeds, you will see high Christology from the very beginning. It, it didn't, one of these books that, that Bart Ehrman wrote, the scholar that I was mentioning, he wrote this book, How Jesus Became God. And it's this, it's this common sort of canard that, that, oh, the disciples didn't worship Jesus. He, it was, he, he became God over time. That he, they, they said later on that he was God because that just evolved. But no, right from the beginning, as we saw with that creed and the creed from Romans, it was immediately Jesus, the son of God, was demonstrated in power by being raised from the dead. 
So right, right at, at the beginning, the resurrection was taught. It was not some urban legend that rose up over time. Ninety percent of scholars uh, will agree that Saul of Tarsus also had a real experience he thought was an appearance of the risen Jesus. Now, I know that I already said one of the earlier points was that the disciples, but Saul of Tarsus gets, gets a slot all by himself. Why? Because he was an enemy. He was not a disciple of Jesus. He was an enemy of Jesus. He was on his way to continue his persecution of the followers of the way. He, he had approved of their deaths. He had, uh, he had gone after them and was, was passionately going after them. So how, how is it that Saul of Tarsus had this experience of the risen Jesus, of what he believed was the risen Jesus, when he loathed what was going on. Additionally, James, the skeptic, James, the half-brother of Jesus, was a skeptic. If you remember that account in, in the Gospels where his family member, Jesus is preaching, and his family comes outside, and they, they, they're wanting him and, and they say, in the Greek, they say that they thought he was beside himself, that, that literally he, he, he was out of his mind. He was beside himself. They thought he was crazy. And James was in that category. James, James was a skeptic. I mean, can you imagine? You're, you're being raised with this Jesus, and then your, your half-brother goes off and starts making these claims and starts doing these things, and you're thinking, oh, wow, that's just bizarre. But skeptical James, who didn't even believe in the first place, then had a real experience that he thought was the resurrected Christ. Another thing is that Sunday became the primary day of worship. If you remember... The early, early church were all Jews. Of course, they worship on, on the Sabbath. They're always, they've always worshiped on the Sabbath. But what happened that caused them to change to Sunday to becoming the primary day of worship? And lastly, for these points, Jesus predicted his resurrection ahead of time. Now, this is an interesting point. Because if he predicted his resurrection ahead of time, and, and no one, there's no one that will say Jesus was a lunatic, that Jesus was, you know, sort of off or anything. They, they, they acknowledge that Jesus um, was, well, in his right mind, unlike, unlike what his family members apparently thought. And so this means that he knew about it ahead of time. If he... Uh, again, what the, scholars are, what the scholars are admitting. He knew about it ahead of time. He was in on it. And so here's the thing. Jesus is the only founder of a major world religion that claimed to be God. There's a, you can hear talks on the uniqueness of, of Christ, but this is for Jesus to predict his, his resurrection appearances ahead of time 
remember, he was the only founder of a major world religion that claimed to be God. He was also the only founder of a major world religion who said, what you do with me determines where you spend eternity. No one else said that. Not Muhammad, not Buddha, not Krishna, if he existed. Not any of them said that. And he was the only founder of a major world religion that miracles were reported within a generation. And they acknowledged this. And that guy predicted his resurrection ahead of time. So the question with all of this is, when you get to the end of the day, all of these things that are admitted, admitted as facts by scholars, what do you do with that? Because critical scholars will still not admit resurrection. Why? Because they have a pre-commitment to naturalism that disallows miracles. Miracles are not allowed, therefore resurrection did not happen. But when they're asked, well, what, then what did happen? They will say, I don't know. <laughs> they, they, they don't really have an explanation. Why? Because naturalistic theories fail. Let's talk about, we're really running out of time. But let's get to some of these objections that that um, people still present that um, even with all of this evidence, they still want to deny the resurrection of Jesus. So the, the first one, Jesus never lived. I mean, that is a really, really just sliver of people. They're called Jesus mythicists. And if you talk to someone that says Jesus never lived, I'm not, you know, we never, we're never going to be rude or disparaging to people or, or condescending, but I'm, you can gently tell them, you know, no one believes this anymore. There's just, there's just too many, there's too many extra biblical sources. There's too many, um, even biblical sources, as you saw, you can, you can, uh, quote scripture, the scripture that, this, that the scholars will allow. You can quote that. There are just too many sources for Jesus. So that is not, not one that I encourage you to really spend a lot of time arguing with someone about because just nobody believes that anymore. Um, the resurrection myth evolved over time. I hope that you can see that after what was presented today, that simply just does not hold water. There's, there's just no way... That, that that can stand up. And, and remember, as we're, going, as we're going through these, remember the tactics that I taught you last week too. You can present this evidence, but you can also ask them questions. If they're making these objections, you can also ask them these questions. So how did you come to that conclusion? What, what makes you say that, that, that the myth, that the resurrection was a myth that grew up over time? What about the resurrection didn't happen because miracles are impossible? This is a great one for those questions. To say, oh, really? Um, can you help me to understand how it is that miracles are impossible? And they'll probably say, well, science has disproven it or something like that, which by definition, science cannot disprove miracles because science deals with the natural realm. And by definition, miracles are supernatural, so they're outside that realm. Science cannot prove that miracles don't happen. Jesus' disciples stole the body. 
this, this has been going around for a long time. And in fact, it's in scripture. That's, a lot of these naturalistic theories are already addressed in scripture. Jesus' disciples stole the body. Now, here's the question. We know from history that the disciples were, we, we have a lot of good history to show that the disciples were martyred for their faith. If they stole the body and then they went around and proclaimed that Jesus rose from the dead, and then they get beaten and killed, I mean, that doesn't seem like a very good strategy to me. Usually, if you lie about something, you want to get gain out of it. You don't want to get flogged and crucified and beheaded and ostracized, and, you know, it's just, it's not real smart. Jesus didn't actually die. How about that one? This one is, is, is just kind of silly because this one is called the swoon theory, that Jesus didn't actually die. He just swooned up there on the cross, and then uh, they stuck him in the cold tomb. They, you know, the, the Romans who were experts at death and, and came up with this, they, they did all their stuff. They stuck him in the side with a spear. They packed him up with spices. They stuck him in a cold tomb. And somehow or another, he rolled the two-ton stone away and limped out. That's inspiring. He didn't actually die, but he just sort of resuscitated somehow three days later. It's just, it's just so implausible. What about the disciples were hallucinating? We already addressed that. A, some, some psychologists have said, if there was a mass hallucination like that, that would be more of a miracle than the resurrection itself. <laughs> what about the disciples made it up? Again, why would you make something like this up? And why would Paul make this up? Paul, who was a Pharisee, who was zealous for the law, he said, why would he make something like that up? It just, it makes no sense whatsoever. So I would encourage you guys, I, I, we're out of time. I wanted to get to, uh, you know, doing a, a, a question, uh, um, you know, where we were practicing the, the tactics. But I want to encourage you, when you guys run across people who are going to give these objections, who think the, the resurrection is not substantiated by evidence, Work on your questions, but there's also so much, so much evidence. And uh, Bob has back there, I see him putting it on the table, or on the chairs back there. Um, there are handouts that I uh, had printed out. I got it from a guy, his name is uh, Jay Warner Wallace. He's also a great apologist, and he, he um, does a lot of these great little handouts. Um, more evidence for the resurrection that deals with even more. So I encourage you to take a look at those. And um, I want to, I think we, I think we need to finish up. So um, let's pray. And if you have any questions, just come up afterwards, but we, but we do have to wrap it up. So sorry about that, guys. Father, thank you that you have such even respect for us that you would condescend to give us this evidence. You don't have to. You, you, you could demand of us blind faith. You are the God of the universe, and you could demand to say, 
I exist and I expect you to believe in me and that's it. But you, you provide us with more and more and more evidence to where trust in you is such a reasonable thing. We are, we are in awe of what you've done for us, that you would come and that you would pay the penalty on our behalf so that we could be rescued from our own actions. We ask, Father, that, that you would continue to make this more and more real to us as you continue to conform us to the image of your Son over time. And would you bring divine appointments to us this week? With this, with this material that, that people who you are pursuing need to hear this? Would you bring people into our lives that we can share this with, that we can have these interactions with? And would you help us to worship you in spirit and in truth this morning as we, as we worship you for what you did on our behalf and conquering death and, and that you raised bodily and that we can have confidence to know that we will be with you one day. In Jesus' name, amen.